I'll go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together again this morning and just encourage one another through uh, fellowship and and just getting to meet with like-minded people and those who know and understand your love and live under your special atoning grace, Lord, uh, an opportunity to uh, preach not only to ourselves the great truths of who you are, but also to encourage those who uh, are not on a walk that uh, brings you glory through salvation, Lord, but instead on a walk that brings them ultimately to death and destruction, that they would hear the warnings and they would uh, see in us the life that you have given that is so abundant, that they too might know you and what it is to bring you glory, not in their destruction, but bring you glory in their salvation. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. Job, and I think we got through eight. Does that sound right? I made the mistake of continuing my note. We didn't get all the way through everything I had notes on last time, and um, I didn't mark where we finished, and I just continued the notes on a single page, so I think we got through eight. Wanted to start, though, um, in Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. Does anyone know what that is? See what kind of audience I have. Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, is the to be or not to be speech. And I want to read through this because understand Job came first, but Hamlet is, as I said, nearly as good a poetry as, as Job was. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them, to die to sleep no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die to sleep, to sleep. Perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil may give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pains of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin, who would fartles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whom's born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. And if you take that thought of Hamlet and what he's discussing is life has been so miserable to him, he is now focused on the fact that because life is miserable and it ends in death, is it ever worth even, even living? Which is better to be or not to be? And we saw that in Job's statement about, wouldn't it have been better if I hadn't been born? Wouldn't it have been better if, okay, I'm born, but, but I die in my infancy? I never nurse from my mother. I never comforted by a human being. I just go straight to the grave. Wouldn't that have been better than what I've been through so far? Shakespeare repeats some of those same ideas here. 
Shakespeare, of course, does not have the hope of what comes next. He's honest with himself. He does not know. None of us at that point uh, around Shakespeare could say, yeah, I rose from the dead. Let me tell you about it. So to him, death is an undiscovered country. We see that same idea that Job has about death, that it's an end. It's a finality, and when it comes, it finally brings an end to the suffering that he's had. And for him, that doesn't look that bad. Again, I would caution those of you who have been blessed with an optimism that others have not, that there are those people for whom life is like that. They have a hard time seeing, and sometimes they're deprived of the simple joys and pleasures that you may be afforded, certainly that I am afforded. And because of that, life is more miserable. We live in in the richest society of, of human history. We have more luxuries than anyone else has ever had by a hundredfold, if you took it against the average. Um, we whine about inflation, but to be honest, we still have it pretty good and things are pretty cheap. So there are those, though, that, that whose lives are not as rich as ours, whose, whose circumstances aren't as, as good as ours, and who struggle mightily compared to where we are. And just bear that in mind, especially when you're comforting a friend who is who's struggling with these things. We finished last week, again, I believe, in chapter 8, where Job is discussed uh, in, in chapter 7, this, this thought about the futility of life, that basically life is hard and then you die. He gives us this graphic picture of decay and death. That when you die, no matter who you are, you have limited impact on the living um, and, and certainly there's the exception to that rule, but generally that's, that's the case. And in Job's state, remember, Job didn't see what you and I saw in chapters 1 and 2, why this whole situation has taken place for him. Job doesn't see the cause of God to treat him so miserably that ultimately, uh, or that, that it was Satan actually who was bringing all these trials and tribulations on Job's life, but it was so that God might be glorified in the, the actions and the testing of Job. Job doesn't see that that's what's going on. He sees this as God treating him so miserably. He assumes on God being the, the root cause of his problem. So therefore, he can find no rest from his concerns. In fact, it got to the point we said there in verses 17 and 18 where, where Job questions, what is man that you magnify him or set your heart on him, that you examine him in the morning and test him every moment? That's not what is man that you make so great and glorify him and pretend or that he is so awesome. This is why do you make something as tiny as man so important to you that you would take the time to judge him and bring about suffering on him. What are we to you? Couldn't you just leave us alone like an ant underneath a magnifying glass in the sunlight? Why would you even care about the little ants? That's what he's asking. Then we get to chapter 8 where, where Bildad then responds that God is just... In other words, you do good, God will reward you. You do bad, God will punish you. Bildad believes this. 
Most of us would believe that. Now, we believe that, that that's ultimately what takes place, not necessarily tit for tat in this life. But he believes that, and he sees the suffering of Job, and you have to remember that he spent a week with Job just sitting quietly. So he understands the suffering of Job, and Bildad's take on the whole thing is the only way this could all happen to Job is if there must be something Job has done, God must be justly punishing him. It's interesting that both Job and Bildad are, are, are crying out to the justice of God. In Job's case, he hasn't done anything to deserve this, and he's crying out to the justice of God and not finding it. And in Bildad's case, he's assuming God is just, and therefore, Job must have done something wrong. And that takes us to then to chapter 9, where we'll, we'll start. Job's response to this, this assumption of his wrongdoing and Job's assertion that I am in the right. Job answered and said, in truth, I know that this is so, that that God judges the unjust. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one desired to contend with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in power, who has stiffened his neck against him and been at peace. God is the one who removes the mountains and they know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, the one who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, the one who says for the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, Who does great things unsearchable and wondrous works innumerable? Were he to sweep by me, I would not see him. And were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could turn him back? Who could say to them, what are you doing? I don't know if any of you have been in a situation where you felt that type of pain so deep inside you that you, you understand that the awfulness of not physical pain and not necessarily emotional pain, but even the pain of seeing injustice done or even the pain of seeing those things which God hates being carried out. And you feel that pain, but at the same time, your temptation is to tell God that you're supposed to be the just one. You're supposed to take care of these things and prevent these things from happening. But knowing that you have no way to stand before the Almighty who can accomplish anything according to his own will and the whim of his own desires. And who are you to stand up to him? Job understands this. He sees this. And, and to him at this point in his pain, it's very frustrating. In verse 13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to plead for the grace of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was giving ear to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the mighty one. And if it's a matter of justice, who can make him testify? Though I am righteous, my mouth, will be con- my mouth will condemn me. Though I am blameless, he will declare me perverse. I am blameless. I do not know my soul. I reject my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he consumes the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge puts to death suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. 
The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it not he, then who is it? Some pretty strong words about God and and who he is there. Job is saying that if I were to be in court right now with God and plead my case, I know that he has the power to shut my mouth. I know that he has the power and the wisdom and the understanding of all things to make whatever my, my case is, whatever my argument is, he can make not. He, can, he has the mind, he has the ability, he has the wisdom to argue against me and win. And ultimately, he has the power to, to lock me up and shut me up, even if I did have that, that possibility that he's the one that's consuming me. You can tell that, that, that Job is in such an anguish. We know that he's a righteous man. His wife said, curse God and die, and he refused to do so. And here it's, he's coming very close to that whole cursing God thing. He's, but, but give the man a break. He's been more than a week in this state of, of distress, not only with everything he lost, but with his physical illness as well. And he's just overwhelmed, and you can tell he has no idea what to do about God. There's a lot of conflicting statements that he makes throughout this. And I think his heart is just torn in what he's experiencing. He's claiming that God is not just in my case, and he would crush me for challenging him, so I cannot challenge him. But at the same time, he knows and understands God is is a just God, that God is the one who, again, rewards righteousness and punishes sin, and he can't make sense of it. 25, then, now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They do not see good. They sweep by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its food. Though I say I will forget my musing, I will forsake my sad countenance and be cheerful. I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court for judgment together. There is no adjudicator between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. Let him remove his rod from me and let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. Even though he believes that he's in the right and God is in the wrong, he knows that he cannot speak against God. He knows there's judgment for doing so. He knows that he actually has to both lean on God, who is his only hope of salvation, and also He blames God for the situation that he's in. So again, just the turmoil that's in his mind right now. But you see that through 25 through 29, the idea that that his fate is decided and, and let's just get this over with. Why in the world am I toiling in vain? Why am I here? My life goes by so quickly, just end it now. I can't even pretend that I'm cheerful. I can't even pretend because I'm afraid once I start doing, there'll be even more cause to... To punish me. And he continues then in chapter 10. Job here declares to God that he's innocent. My soul is loathed by my life. I will abandon all restraint in myself to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not account me as wicked. Let me know why you contend with me. So here Job lets God have it. 
Is it good to you that you oppress, that you reject the labor of your hands and cause the counsel of the wicked to shine forth? Have you eyes of flesh or do you see as a mortal man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal man or your years as man's years that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not wicked, yet there is no deliverer from your hand. He's saying, God, you know I'm innocent in all this and yet you continue to cause me to suffer. You're not a man who has limited vision. You're not a man that, like his friends here, that just assumes someone's guilty. You're actually the one who knows and understands all these things taking place. Why is it that you have not come to my aid? You know I'm innocent. God knows that Job is but a man, but Job believes God is ignoring that in his judgment of him. There in verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you swallow me up? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have made alongside me life and loving kindness, and your care has kept my spirit. Yet these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that it is within you. If I sin, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace, so see my misery. Should my head be set on high, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Job's saying that, look, God, I understand that if I sin, you respond. And each one of us knows that in our heart. I think each one of us has that. We talked uh, about Romans uh, 2 in our, in our D group on Saturday morning. Each one of us has in our heart that, that unwritten law of God. Each one of us knows what is good and evil. And each one of us knows that when we do bad, we should expect punishment. And Job is accepting that. He's accepting the idea that, that if he does a bad thing, then he deserves God's punishment. He deserves God attacking him. He deserves whatever he gets. And even when he's righteous, in verse 15, I dare not lift up my head. He understands that all of his guilt is still on him, even when he does good. He understands the humility of being flawed man versus a holy God. And he understands that, again, God is the one who knit him together, who made him. So his, his mind is, is not dealing with this dichotomy of ideas that God seems to show us loving kindness and at the same time bring about this unfair treatment to him. Why then, in verse 18, have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had breathed my last and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb to tomb. Would he not cease for a few of my days? Withdraw from me that I might have a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and shadow of death. The land of utter gloom is the thick darkness itself, of the shadow of death without order, and which shines as the thick darkness. This whole idea that he's been born... And it had been better that he had not been born, as we've discussed before, as he stated before. And probably the saddest part of this is in verse 20 is, would that you would withdraw from me that I might know a little cheer. Can you imagine being at a point 
where your suffering and your pain and your anguish is so great that the best thing for you would be if God just left you alone and withdrew for you that, from you that you might have some cheer. Truly a deep point of despair in Job's life. And the question would then become is, if you have a friend going through this, how would you respond? Would you correct him in what he's thinking about God? Would there be that temptation at all to say, hey, wait a second. God is good. You just need to settle down here because you know what? God is where you find cheer in your life. And yet you're the one you're trying to say that if he left you alone, you would find happiness. No, that's wrong. Because that's how his friends respond. And remember his friends, because we know the story. It doesn't, God is not pleased with their response to him. So what is the good response that, that his friends should have? Well, let's look at first in, in chapter 11, the response that Job gets. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a man of lips be in the right? Shall your boasts silence men? What boasts? Well, he's boasting in his innocence. And shall you mock and none rebuke? You have said, My learning is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and tell you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. So Zophar's response is what basically Job's complaint against God is, is that Look, you, you don't get to actually boast in, about your innocence and you don't get to claim to God that you're innocent because God actually knows you. He understands you. He, and, and he's the all-wise, all-knowing one. This is the response of his friends. And again, those of you who know me know that this is probably the response I would give you if you were in this situation and said the things Job said. I am by no means innocent. I'm learning. Looking forward to being either older or dead, because when I'm older, I'll behave righter, and if, when I'm dead, um, I will sin no more, which would be nice. But for right now, you, you get me. Can you find the depths of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? Of course you can. Zophar's telling, telling good, true things here. They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he sweeps by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can turn him around? For he knows worthless men and he sees wickedness. So will he not carefully consider it? Yet an empty-headed man will obtain a heart of wisdom and the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Interesting statement. Um... Basically, an empty-hearted man, a man who is a fool, can obtain wisdom. And the fool of a donkey is born a man, but a man can also be born a, a, a donkey. There's a better term for that, but I won't say it. Um, verse 13, if you would set your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if wickedness is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let unrighteousness dwell in your tents. He's telling Job, you need to search your heart and and repent. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. For you would forget your trouble as waters that pass by so you would remember it. 
and your lifetime would rise brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust because there is hope and you would search around and rest securely. You would lie down and none would make you tremble and many wouldn't treat your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will come to an end and the escape will perish from them and their hope is the expiring of their soul. I mean, I can, I can see myself giving this uh, advice to a friend or, or one of my sons or one of my nieces or nephews, just, hey, you're in a tough spot right now, but turn to God, repent from your sin, and your life will return to be, being good. Again, the temptation is there to, to believe you know and understand why it is that someone is suffering and why it is that God has allowed calamity in the life of a person. And that's the assumption Zophar here is making, and that's where he goes wrong. It's not that his statements about who can find the depths of God or find the limits of the Almighty, that, that whole statement about the greatness of God and God's righteousness is not wrong at all. And he's, it's true that... that if you look forward, if you repent and you look forward to a brighter day, that that, that day is probably coming and, and you can actually rest in it and look forward to it and you'll have hope and this is all good. Um, this could end well for you. But it's all predicated on the, the, the idea that, Job, you're in your situation because of your own sin. And certainly when we're in our own sin, we do need to understand that God is almighty, that he's above all, and that we do need to repent and turn to him. And then we can have hope. But just be careful when dealing with friends who have been through so much that sometimes it's not from their own doing. And even when you don't realize it, you often assume it is. And then... Back up at verse 12, just really quick. I just wanted to touch on that because I forgot to read my note. So basically, in studying that phrase, yet an empty-headed man will obtain the heart of wisdom and the foal of a wild donkey is born a man, is basically saying you may think you are intelligent, Job, but even an idiot is smart if you compare him to a donkey. And so he's telling Job that you're full of words and, and your words may make you feel like you're wise, but... Anyone can be wise if they compare themselves to a donkey. Chapter 12 then, Job now gets to respond after Zophar. He answers and said, truly then you are the people and with you wisdom will die. You guys know everything, right? Clearly you think you have it all figured out. But I have a heart of wisdom as well as you. I do not fall short of you. And who does not know such things as these? And it's true. Like I said, everything Zophar said in the right circumstances is true. Job says, I'm a laughingstock to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the righteous and blameless man is a laughingstock. Again, he's saying I'm innocent. And yet you are all standing around mocking me. As for upheaval, there is only contempt by the one who acts at ease, but it is prepared for those whose feet slip. The tents of the destroyers are complacent, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. How much do we see that? How much do we see that the tents 
of the destroyers are complacent, meaning they're just sitting around doing nothing. They're terrible people, and yet they sit around doing, you know, they've got a life of ease. And people who actually provoke God seem to be secure. In fact, they're not only secure, it seems that God allows them to come into power. And we know that from the New Testament that who allows any leader to be the leader of their country? God does. God sets all leaders up. He puts them in their positions of power. He appoints kings. Not just good kings, all kings. He appoints everyone who, he, he's the one who ultimately said, Joe Biden will be president of the United States. That was within the power of God and he allowed for it. Does it make any sense that someone who is so anti-God is in power? Job is, Job is saying, yeah, you're being really simple here, guys. We all know that this isn't how life works. That there's something deeper than just you do good, you get blessing, you do bad, you get cursed. In verse 7, but now ask the beasts and let them instruct you and the birds of the sky and let them tell you. Or muse to the earth and let it instruct you and let the fish of the sea recount it to you. So, so turn to nature. Let's look and see what nature teaches us. Who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all flesh of man? Does not the ear test words and palate taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with long life is discernment. So what are we supposed to learn from, from the birds of the sky? The beasts of the field. Well, if you go back up, it's that God is in control of everything, and God's the one who, whether it's good or bad, he's the one that set it, sets things in place. Our birds that are now starting to, to, to fly around and be everywhere, and grackles are back, which is terrible, but, we've, but who feeds them? How in the world do they get food? Is it not that God provides them? We can look at nature and see that God is the one who is ultimately in control of all these things. An animal is killed in the field. Is not it ultimately the, the path that God has set the world on that causes that to happen? He's the one who's ultimately in control of all things. So Job is agreeing that God is almighty. He is all powerful. Verse 13, with him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and discernment. Behold, he pulls down and it cannot be rebuilt. He closes a man in and it cannot be opened. Behold, he restrains the waters and they dry up. He sends them out and they overturn the earth. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to him. He makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. He opens the bonds of kings and binds their loins with a belt. He makes priests walk barefoot and subverts the enduring ones. He removes speech from the faithful and takes away the discerning taste of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belts of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings out the shadow of death into night, into light. He makes the nations great and makes them perish. He enlarges the nation and leads them away. He removes the heart of wisdom from the heads of the earth's people and makes them wander in the pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them wander about like a drunken man. Should give you some... some Rest should give you some, some confidence, knowing that everything that takes place on this earth is controlled by God. It's not to say that God brings about or God causes these things, but they're all within his purview. They're all within 
the path again that he has set this world upon and it continues to move forward in, marching towards his glory. Certainly in our day and age, as we look at nations trying to make themselves great and expand their borders, that, that ultimately it's in God's hands. We know it is. Job is not speaking untruth here. He's acknowledging that God is the one who's in charge of everything. But then he turns to his own case. Behold, my eyes have seen all this. My ears, ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I have not fallen short of you. You guys think you're smart. I'm right there with you. And remember, Job was like the top wise man judge in his city, in his area. He was considered one of the great men of his area, so, or in his overarching community, such as a prince or a king or a, or a sheik. And before all this happened, he would have not been one that they would have challenged his wisdom, and now they're challenging him in his pain and suffering. Verse 3, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. But you cover me with lies. You are worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. What's the saying? It's better to, better to keep your... Yeah. A fool or open your mouth and, and remove all doubt. Because the... Basically, you guys would be better if you'd just sit and be quiet. Remember that first seven days you spent with me? That was good times. Let's go back to that. Will you speak what is unrighteous for God and speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he examines you? So, so there's, he's saying, look, I'm innocent and God is judging me, believing that it's God that's judging him for something he hasn't done. And now they're taking God's side when God is in the wrong. Will you speak what is unrighteous for God? Are you representing God with a falsehood? Are you speaking something that's deceitful for him, saying I am guilty when I am not? Will you show partiality for him? Are you just siding with God because you know God wins in the end? When it turns out that I'm actually in the right? Is it going to be well when he examines you or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? When God comes and judges you, this is foreshadowing again. This is looking to the end of the book. Will you deceive one, him as one deceives a man? Are you going to be able to talk your way out of this when God challenges you for the way you're treating me? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. And again, they're showing partiality for God here, not to each other. Will not his exaltedness terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. He's going to crush you when this, when this is all said and done and you see that I'm innocent. This is what's going to happen. You don't get to show partiality for God. You don't get to, to pretend he's the innocent one here when I'm actually the innocent one here. Now, again, there's a hole in Job's thinking because he's blaming God for something. He's, he's this close to blaming God for something that's happened to him when he's innocent. He doesn't see the whole picture. Job continues, be silent before me so that I may speak. Then let come on me what may. 
Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my words and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold now, I have arranged my case for justice. I know that I will be declared righteous. Who will contend with me? For now I am silent and will breathe my last. Job understands what he's about to do in going and challenging God. He's taking his life in his own hands to do this. But he has to. And at the same time, he understands that his hope is in the justice of God, that God's righteousness, his judging rightly, righteousness can refer to the works that God does, but righteousness in this case is a, is a legal declaration, a legal standing that God has. He does what is right because of the quality of righteousness in him. It's the same thing that we are given when we stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness is that we have a standing that we are now the type of people who do what is right. We have that righteousness God is a righteous judge and he is counting on God being a righteous judge though he is the one who is slaying him. He's looking forward to when he dies as he believes he's about to, I will be able to to have my case heard and I will get to the bottom of this. But he continues to his friends. That's why he says, for now I am silent and will breathe my last and then he goes on talking. It isn't that He forgot what he just said. It's that he's looking at his death there. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide from your face. Move your hand far from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak, then respond to me. Saying he wants to contend with God over this situation. He wants to bring his case to him. And he's asking God, this God, that he, who is slaying him to not be far from him and not remove his hand from him. Even though that's the hand that's causing him great pain, even though that's the hand that's causing him to dread, he doesn't want God removed from him. Again, the turmoil that's in Job's heart is, is tremendous here. Call and I will answer, let me speak, then respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and think of me as your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble or will you pursue the dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me to possess the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks and keep watch over all my past. You set a limit for the soles of my feet while I'm decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. You can see that Job does not have a very high perception of what man is compared to God. We're a driven leaf in the wind. We're dry chaff. Interesting that, that Job here is not saying that he is without fault, right? We talked about that at the beginning. Job is declared a righteous man, yet here Job is admitting that he sinned. God knows he sinned. He just hasn't sinned in such a way as to deserve what he's going through right now. There's a, there's a statement in there that, um, oh, 
You write bitter things against me and make me to possess the iniquities of my youth. How many here have found that, that sin was much easier and much more tempting when we were younger? How many of you who are younger look like, I can't wait till I'm old and I'm not tempted in these ways anymore? I think that's a real thing. It is for me. Maybe I'm weird. Um, but Job sees it. He sees his youth. And, and it all kind of, this whole passage reminds me of, you remember what Job would do for, on his children's behalf? What's that? He'd pray. Sacrifice. He'd sacrifice for him in case they had sinned and he didn't know about it. He understands there are sins that you don't acknowledge or don't have a, an understanding that you've actually done. And Job here is saying, I understand I am a guilty person. I have sinned before when in my youth I did things that were stupid. And we've seen that he, some sins, you, the bad things you do, you don't even realize you're doing. And even with all that, that's kind of the human condition, I think, is what he's saying. And yet, God, what am I that you, you have decided that of all the people that go through this normal life that we have, where we sin against you, where in our youth we have special sins that we sin, that, that we sin when we don't even know it, what is it that you've decided to take after me? Like a wind going after a, a decaying leaf, you're coming after me. And again, we, we started this by reading through, through Shakespeare. And in 14, we, we kind of come across that argument again. The finality of death is both a blessing and a curse. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not stand. You also open your eyes on him and bring me into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the numbers of his months is with you. And his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. You turn your gaze from him that he may cease from toil until he accepts his day like a hired man. Job here is dealing with uh, the ideas of fatalism, that a person lives a set amount of time and does a set number of things, and he's finite and he's flawed, and once he's dead, you're done. Don't take that to a person and try to encourage them in their sufferings. And don't, don't stop there. Keep reading. <laughs> For there is hope for a tree. So now he's going to compare himself to a tree when it's cut down, that it will change back, sprouting again, and its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its slump, stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. Has anyone ever cut down locust trees out in the pasture? Yeah, what happens when it rains? Yeah, you got to kill that thing dead, dead. You can't just cut it off. Cedar trees are the same. I have a friend that just put in a bunch of cedar trees in a, in a weather strip thing. Anyway, it's terrible. I'm like, you're, and he's going to have pasture. I said, your pasture is going to be filled with cedar trees now. They just don't die. Not like us. We don't have that. We don't get cut off and start sprouting back up in the spring. A man dies and lies prostrate 
Man breathes his last and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea, a river becomes parched and dried up. So man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Now do understand that Job believes in the resurrection and we'll get there, but he's not wrong. When you die, you're done, right? He's, he's stating a truth here that we can all agree on and that locust trees are evil. It's the other part he kind of said. And for those of you who don't know, locust trees grow thorns about yay long. And they're nasty. And they, when they're little, they're little tiny thorns. And, and they're, but the big thorns, they're like the thorns you see when, when they, you see a crown of thorns like Jesus. Like those. Those grow in Nebraska. They're terrible trees. Oh, that you would conceal me in Sheol, that you would hide me until your anger returns to me, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. In other words, don't, just, don't forget me down here. Remember, I'm the one you're punishing right now. Please decide that this ends at some point. Don't just forget me in your wrath. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my labor, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. For now you number my steps and you do not keep watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. You cover up my iniquity. Isn't that the joy of, of death that so many of us long for? Is the fact that once we're dead, you no longer have to, God doesn't have to keep track of all the times I've sinned. My transgressions are sealed up. I'm done sinning. You can cover up my iniquity. It's all done. I'm finished. And he's looking forward to that day. But the falling mountain crumbles away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stone. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you make man's hope perish. You forever overpower him and he goes away. You alter his appearance and send him away. That picture of getting older and as you get older, it's like the the water moving over you. You have no ability to keep it back and it's wearing away. It's talking about your body and your mind and your hopes and dreams and everything starts getting more and more limited. Even your appearance starts showing the signs of this as hard as you may battle against it. And then his sons achieve honor, but he doesn't know it. Or they become insignificant, but he doesn't perceive it. But his flesh pains him and he mourns only for himself. Even those relationships that you have with your children You lose, either in death, you aren't around to see them, or even when you're alive, you don't have to go very far to visit somebody who's at an age where they don't really understand what's going on with their family members around them. So again, Job is looking at what happens when he dies. He can be done suffering, and he can be done with sin, done paying for his iniquity on this earth, and God will be done punishing him, is what he's looking forward to. And we have the response of his friends. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue with a word that cannot be used or with speech which is not profitable? Indeed, you annul reverent fear and cut off musing before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I and your own lips answer against you. Again, Eliphaz assumes Job's guilt. And in your guilt, Job, you're saying things that are not true. Because you are so guilty, you're being punished so terribly. And therefore, you're being irreverent to God. 
Were you the first man to be born or were you brought forth before the hills? Did you hear the secret counsel of God and cut down wisdom only unto yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not with us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Those good things that God does for you, are those not good enough? Even the word spoken gently with you? We've been speaking gently with you, Job. I wouldn't say that that's true. Why does your heart take you away? And why do your eyes flash that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? In other words, that doesn't happen. Mankind is not born pure. He is not righteous. Behold, he puts no faith in his holy ones. God puts no faith in his holy ones. This would be his angels. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less is one who is abominable and corrupt, man who drinks unrighteousness like water? So a little, a little insight into what they understood of God. They apparently understood the fall of the angels. They understood that Lucifer fell and he understands that, that angels went with him and that's what he's talking about. They did, there's even angels who have, who have dirtied the presence of heaven. Heaven is no longer pure because of them. How much more those of us who are not immortal beings in our current bodies, I should say. How much le- we're, we live in these corrupt, abominable contraptions of bodies and we sin and we're unrighteous. How much more do we deserve this? I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have beheld I will also recount that wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. Okay, so he's going to tell... Job, this is really important, and all of us have known this for generations and generations. The wicked man rise in pain all his days, and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Sounds of dread are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, and he is destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack because he has stretched out his hand against God and magnifies himself against the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with his massive shield. So, so up to this point, if you're a bad person, bad things happen to you is what he's saying. You live in a life of calamity when you do evil. And now this is God's response to evil people. He rushes headlong at him with a massive shield for he has covered his face with his, I'm sorry, this is man's response to God then. He rushes headlong at God with his massive shield for he has covered his face with his fat and made his thighs heavy with flesh. He has dwelt in desolate cities and houses no one would inhabit, which are destined to become ruins. He will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure, and his grain will not stretch out over the land. He will not be able to depart from darkness. The flame will wither in his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not believe in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. When his days are not yet fulfilled and his palm branch is not green, he'll drop off his unripe grape like the vine and will cast off the flower like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren. The fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. They conceive trouble and give birth to wickedness and their belly prepares deception. So, Wicked do not prosper. Is that true? Anyone know any wicked person who's done well in this life? 
Is it always? Did somebody say oh Yeah. It. They all do. So, so yeah. Thanks, bud. Um, what a good friend. By the way, wicked people are always punished for their wickedness. Now, it may have been in their culture much more likely for that to happen than ours. Our culture is just about as bad as we can be. And evil seems to get more and more praise and adulation. So it's, it's kind of like reading through the Proverbs. You know and understand that these things are generally true, but at the same time, life teaches you these things are generally not true. That this is the way things should work, that God's established things, and yet something is off, that this isn't what happens. And it's almost as though Eliphaz here has, has played, has, has gone a little bit too far in his explanation of the world. And Job's going to respond to that, but that is for another time. So just kind of in review and summary, because it's a tough place to leave people, is that again, we have here Job who is innocent. He's not being punished by God for anything that he has done. He's being used by God, tested to show, tested in such a way as to show his righteousness as God is, has believed him to be so that God can receive the glory, that this is what true faith looks like and God can display him for the devil and say, look, this is what righteousness looks like. This is a righteous man. This is a man who stands up for me and what is good. In that, his friends have turned on him now. His friends would have been far better off assuming his, his innocence and supporting him with the idea that, yes, when you're innocent, God is still on your side. When you are guilty, God punishes you. But at the same time, we don't understand why an innocent man is going through this punishment. That is what the response should have been. And so much better for Job if it had been. For Job here is going to get rebuked by God for his lack of reverence to him for his understanding that God is the one that's doing this just to be mean and cruel. But at the same time, we see that Job really struggles with that whole dichotomy of if I'm innocent and God is the one who is punishing me, yet God is the one I'm running to for, for reassurance and rest. He's the one that I want to have on my side. And that's where we need to be when we're in pain. And it is where we need to direct our friends when they're suffering as well. We need to be sure we do that. I'll pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for Job. Lord, I pray that uh, we would understand that your wisdom and your working things out in our lives is sometimes not clear even to ourselves. But more importantly, Lord, as we see today, that we would uh, assume what is right and good and true in those around us, that uh, we would love one another in such a way as to... uh, Help build them up in times of trial. Encourage them to do good and to trust in God and to get through the the tough parts. That we would acknowledge that life isn't fair. That we would see your justice as being something that we look forward to, ultimate justice, Lord. For that is what was brought about through your Son as your ultimate justice now can be fulfilled. Lord, we know that Part of that ultimate justice is, as Job sees and his friends see, that you do have to pay for your sin, Lord. 
And yet in your economy of things, that paying for our sins was done for us on the cross through your son, that those sins that you are a just and righteous God who must pay, who must, who must uh, punish sin. Lord, we just thank you for the work that your son did on the cross. And Lord, we look forward even to the day when he comes again and rules in total righteousness and this earth finally gets to see what it is to have righteous nations and a righteous king. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.